In the name of Jesus, amen. Archie Bunker, in his working man's button-down, cigar in mouth, sharing the piano bench with his green-sweatered beloved dingbat, that's what he called her, Edith. From Television City in Hollywood, boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. (laughs) Remember that one? If you don't, you can go Google All in the Family and learn a bit about the golden days of the TV sitcom when theme songs took their sweet time. Uh, Of course, if you watch an episode of the show, you'll, you'll probably be scandalized by Archie's blatant bigotry, racism, and sexism. At least until you realize that's the whole point of the show. To poke fun at Archie's backward longing for his comparing everything in his day to the good old days that maybe never really were. That's what the the theme song's about. Archie and Edith reminiscing about those days. Almost teary-eyed. Oh, what we'd do for a couple of Herbert Hoovers. But alas, we're stuck here in 1972 with a bunch of meatheads. (laughs) What we wouldn't do for a taste of those days. Well, well, that's the kind of feeling, longing for those days. You just might get from reading those few verses from from Acts chapter 2 that served as our first reading for today, verses 42 to 47. This depiction of how things were with the very first Christians, those days, just 50 days after the resurrection. Look at that church, uh, like a great, big, beautiful GM LaSalle, firing on all eight cylinders. They're all devoted, we're told, devoted to the apostles' teaching. They can't get enough of it. Love sermons and and Bible studies, like, like more than Netflix and ESPN. That's a lot. And being together in the temple and then in each other's homes every day. That's togetherness and generosity. How they shared everything in common. Everyone considering everything everyone's. (laughs) People with extra stuff, well, they put it up on Craigslist and gave all the proceeds to the food bank. And this, this is probably most fascinating of all. Get this, no one told them. They were supposed to do that. No one told them they had to. They just did it. There's no membership class saying, now you've been baptized. This is what's expected of you. Sermons, feed strangers a bunch, and uh, sell a vacation home up in Galilee. (laughs) None of that. No guilt trips, no stewardship drive, no top-down program from the, the district to get everybody fired up. They just did it. What a church. What community. What joy in living and giving. Oh, to have been part of those days. But alas, here we are stuck in 2020, a church full of meatheads like me and dingbats like you. (laughs) Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. You see what I mean by looking at that picture of the early church, um, how it can make you kind of Archie Bunker-ish. Hopefully minus the bigotry, but, but you know what I mean. Those were the days. And that's no good. Oh, worse, you might spin that description of the early church into an accusing prescription. 
You're not like that, so get off your duff and be like that. But that won't work either, because like I said, the most fascinating thing uh, about them being like that was that no one had to tell them to be like that. (laughs) So any sermon telling you to be like that would absolutely ruin the whole thing. So rather than Archie Bunkerino telling you to be that, how about this? How about we just think about that, what that was like a a little bit, or or better, better to ask. Ask, use our imaginations a little bit. Ask, how could that life, how could all of that have come so easily? And and since we don't have all day, although these days maybe we do, (laughs) some of us, We'll just look at a a couple of things from that life, of that description of the early church, that generous sharing, and then secondly, that closeness, that that togetherness they they shared. First, the sharing. Selling all their excess. Holding everything in common. This doesn't necessarily mean some kind of commune, but they still had houses. But when it came to their stuff, it seems they didn't have any use for words like my and mine. Which when I was first thinking about that, I said, oh, that must have mean that they just really, really trusted each other. Like not to take advantage of one another, everyone pulling his weight, everyone working as hard as she could and only using as, as much as she needed. But then I remembered something. I remembered group projects in eighth grade. And hating group projects. And the reason I hated group projects was because I didn't trust the other members of the group to work as hard as me to make sure we got an A. So I went to Mr. Schmidt and I said to to Mr. Schmidt, my teacher, I'd like to do my project on my own. Why, he asks. Because I don't trust my groupies to work as hard as me. I see, he replies, uh, stroking his impressive mustache. And Ben, he says, tell me what will happen if they don't work as hard as you. Well, duh, I say, we might not get an A. Oh, he says, pauses a second. You'll be okay if you don't get an A. And then walks away. Click, click, click. That's the sound he made walking away because he always wore cowboy boots. You see what my sage teacher did there, other than infuriate me, of course. Or really what he didn't do. Mr. Schmidt did not ask me to trust my group E's. He knew as well as I did that they very well may blow off the project. Instead, he asked me to trust that whatever the groupies did or did not do, everything would be just fine. Which is kind of the wisdom I'm thinking must have somehow gotten into those Christians eight weeks post-empty tomb. Group work did not work for them because they had some massive trust in each other. No, it worked because they'd somehow come to believe and act on the belief that even if all the groupies took advantage and, and were lazy or whatever or did not share as easily or as much as they did, that still things would be okay. That no matter what, what other the groupies did, there would always be enough. Uh, Heck, that they would be enough without the A's for their individual work and all the worldly perks the A students often get. 
You see that? Uh, again, you see what I'm doing here is not uh, asking us to long for the good old days or ordering you to be like that. Just doing a little thought experiment and asking what does a person have to be convinced of to be like that? To, to make sharing like that, holding on to stuff ever so loosely, selling and giving stuff away. Make that not just happen, but easy. So easy, no one has to tell you you're supposed to do it. And I've come up with a couple things. I'm saying it needs, you need to be convinced that no matter what, there will always be enough. And that second, you don't need stuff to tell you that you are enough. Well, the other characteristic that jumps out from that brief description of the early days, along with the, the, the sharing, is the togetherness. And I guess they're kind of related. Togetherness is just sharing time and space, right? These Christians were together a lot. They had no need of a fellowship committee. They were a fellowship committee. Every day, preaching, praying, praising in the temple, and then after that, breaking bread in each other's homes. Now, that's a lot of togetherness. (laughs) Maybe a little much for many, uh, if you think about it. The last weeks have meant a lot of separation for us, which is difficult. But for many... It's also meant a lot of togetherness (laughs) with the very same people, our families, which can also be difficult. Imagine now this. Imagine if our whole church family was quarantining together here in this building. Oh, dear. (laughs) I bet the communion wine would go fast. (laughs) Now, why? Because people are difficult. For example, me. I am very difficult to be around. At least in large doses, I am. And if you don't think so, that's most likely only because most of you only get me in small, manageable doses. And I'm betting you are the same. In fact, I'm assuming those people we hear about in Acts were the same also. Difficult, taxing, ornery, vindictive, self-absorbed. Not all with fully developed social skills or good personal hygiene. And they got each other in large doses. What could possibly have made that kind of welcomed forgiveness or welcomed togetherness, I just told you, welcomed togetherness as a people possible? What would you need if, God forbid, you were forced to quarantine with someone like me? Well, lots of things. But first of all, you would need massive stores of forgiveness and on hand at all times. I heard a great phrase the other day. Uh, The phrase is prepared forgiveness. I heard it or read it actually. um, Someone was was writing a story about Bill Withers. Uh, Bill Withers, a recently deceased um, songwriter, wrote lots of great hits, uh, Lean on Me and a bunch of others. Well, it turns out that uh, Bill Withers, at least one point in his life, had a stutter. And uh, people would laugh and poke fun at him. And... Since he knew that would happen, he said that he'd come to develop a prepared forgiveness. The basic idea is that instead of waiting for it, you just kind of assume people are going to be horrible. And so when they are, you don't have to drum up some forgiveness. You've already got your forgiveness prepared beforehand. Prepared forgiveness, ready to go. 
Uh, like the mom who always has a purse full of snacks for someone. Someone's going to get hungry. No need to wait till they get hungry. Let's just have them ready to go. Or maybe the guy who um, uh, throws the extra softball glove in the trunk of his car for whoever absently minded, absent-mindedly forgets his. Someone's going to do it. Might as well have it ready. So prepared forgiveness. Instead of the prepared condemnations we often carry around, ready to spring at the first misstep, a prepared forgiveness. And that's the first thing, and I bet the major thing that could make that kind of community, they're an axe, any community really, together with difficult people in large doses possible to exist. Given that it's full of meatheads and dingbats, it must have had massive sores of prepared forgiveness. So there's the Church of Acts chapter 2. A bunch of sharing, all that joyful community. And, and I mean, and of course, that's not all there, all there was. We know that. Just like Archie's good old days were not all good. The rest of the book of Acts certainly shows a lot of the uglier underbelly of the early church. But even if not the whole truth, still the truth and still a beautiful picture of a community of Christians so joyfully generous and tightly bound. And how'd they pull that off? I suggested a a handful of things that should be at the top of the list. They must have been convinced that no matter what, there'd be enough stuff, that they were enough themselves without having to say mine over a bunch of stuff. And then for the togetherness that for some reason they had at the ready, in their pockets, great big wads of forgiveness. So that's Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Um, and I'd also like to tell you this. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has trampled down death. And that means nothing, nothing past, present, or future can possibly separate him from you. The empty tomb, it shouts the good news that the creator and sustainer of all the stuff that ever was, is now, or ever shall be, is absolutely in love with you. He knows your name. He guards where you live. He is intimately familiar with what you need and don't need and more. He is in love with you with a love that is stronger than death. As surely as the tomb is empty and you have all you have you already have and are assured life eternal. If by some chance you ever do run out of stuff and die, well Easter says that's not so bad and certainly not the end. For Christ is risen. Not just risen, but risen with pockets full of forgiveness, with wounds packed with pardon. Risen with a forgiveness prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Your worst sins, maybe they lie behind you. If they do, they are forgiven. The forgiveness for your sins today, the ones you are yet to commit, you know where it is? It's already at the ready in Jesus' trunk, ready to dump all over you. And if the months and years, decades ahead, you happen to fall into depths of sin, you can hardly imagine today, and you very well may, take heart. The forgiveness, the release, the cleansing for that sin, it's in Jesus' giant purse already. Yes, Jesus carries a purse. (laughs) A massive, bottomless purse full of forgiveness already prepared for you. And for every difficult else 
you might want to share it with. Since saying anything more would absolutely ruin this sermon. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.